Hey to all the data-driven marketers out there looking for new ways to reach unique prospects and better engage audiences. This is the 10th, yes, 10th podcast for the Two Guys and Some Data series, giving you the nitty-gritty advice you need to actually make more money. I'm Alan Abbott. And I'm Larry Cavanaugh. And today we're going to talk about, wait for it, data. Yes, we talk a lot about how to use data, but thought that today we'd step back and go over some fundamental questions about what data to capture, how to grab it, and of course the basic tenets behind using it effectively. So Larry, there's so much data out there and so many different types. How do we classify this data in a way that's meaningful to marketers? Well, there's actually a whole science about classifying data. In fact, there's a type of data about data called metadata. Uh, So I think the point you make about how to classify data in a way that's relevant to marketers is really the germane point here. from a marketing perspective, we usually think about data uh, in three ways. You think about or three types. There's first-party data, second-party data, and third-party data. So let's start with first-party data. So first-party data is information that a business directly collects from a consumer. Uh, one of the advantages of first-party data is the business has, a, has really, inside of their own control, the accuracy of that data. So for example, if the business is collecting an email address, uh, the business could actually send something to that email address and see that you know it doesn't bounce. You know that's actually a good and valid uh, email address, uh, and so it's um, uh, it's a great source of information uh, where you can control the accuracy, and it's also free to collect. Uh, you don't have to pay somebody else for your own first-party data; it's just yours. So, Alan, uh, what kind of data do people collect? What what, what can businesses collect that's first-party data? Well, you know, the traditional uh, starting point is transactional data, which is still uh, extremely powerful and, and still works incredibly well in predicting behavior. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, also customer service data. Uh, there's data from primary research. There's data from social media. Uh, and there's, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of web browsing data. Uh, so, Larry, what are some of the limitations, though, of first-party data? Well, while, you know, you can be sure of the accuracy of it, you're really only seeing just a tiny piece of what that consumer is about. You're seeing how they interact with you. Uh, for the most part, first-party data is really only applicable to people who have purchased from you, your own customers, or at least people who have inquired from you. So you're, it's also not very broad. You're not seeing sort of all of the United States. You're just seeing that sort of narrow piece uh, of who you have. Now, how, you know, the, the reason why there is second-party data are because of those limitations of first-party data. Uh, so second-party data is something kind of confusing. Uh, okay, so let me, let me stop you a minute there. Um, it's very, it seems very fuzzy, and, and some people, I think, even doubt the existence of second-party data, sort, sort of like the Loch Ness Monster and Sasquatch. So you know, exactly what is it, and where do you get it? Well, it, it definitely exists. In fact, I would guarantee that about every marketer uh, uh, listening to this has used second-party data and is actively using it, just may not realize it. So second-party data is collected the exact same way as first-party data. It's a business that is directly collecting information from a consumer. The difference is uh, if I'm a company and I'm buying data or renting data or trading data with another company that directly collected that data, that's second-party data. I know who collected it. I know how they collected it. Um, you know, a great example would be anyone listening to this who uses a Facebook custom audience. Those Facebook custom audiences are based on data that consumers have given directly to Facebook. Uh, and you, know, you can rent that audience, you can advertise to that audience, 
but that is you're actually using second party data uh, when you're doing it that way. Uh, so Alan, what are, what are some other examples of second party data? Uh, well, I think there, there's opportunities to uh, get to second party data through uh, creative partnerships. So if you, th- if you think about a company like Fitbit and think about potential partners for them, uh, uh, Title IX, uh, so non-competitive in terms of the products that they sell, uh, but very similar uh, offers, uh, or I'm sorry, very similar audiences. And also uh, someone like Brooks Brothers could partner with Esquire magazine, where again, non-competitive, but probably audiences with very similar interests. Uh, so, Larry, what are, what are some of the limitations, though, of second-party data? Well, sort of by definition, if you really wanted to get like a complete view of your customer or even fill in some pieces uh, of view of your customer base uh, or your prospect base, you'd have to contact, you know, a thousand different, com- you know, a thousand different second parties who had that what to them as first-party data, but to you would be second-party data. And just the, you know, the expense and the difficulty of trying to make you know, trades like you talked about with Fitbit and the cataloger Title IX uh, are, are tough to do. Uh, and so, hence, the reason why third-party data exists is to overcome the limitations of second-party data. So third-party data uh, is data collected by some business where they go out and they make those arrangements with a bunch of second, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, first-party providers, but they bring all that data together and compile it. Uh, and so they, they are, uh, uh, it gives you uh, a much broader view of uh, people, not just your own customer base, but also people who are not your customers. You really, you know, third-party data will in, uh, encapsulate really all of the households in the United States. There is third-party data available about all of the households in the United States. Um, uh, and so it gives you the opportunity to have, um, you know, sort of in one place, a broader view of your customers. But Alan, what are, what are some other examples of uh, third-party data? I, th- I think some often used third-party data are things like credit score uh, or home value or home versus renter. And you know, it's, it's readily available from data aggregators, compilers, uh, the database uh, cooperatives that have been around now for 25 years or so that fuel a lot of the, the, the list rental um, uh, audiences. Uh, is, is a very good example of that also. Uh, but there, there is a, a, uh, an issue to consider with third-party data uh, uh, in terms of uh, it's, it's not unique, it's not proprietary, and which would lead me to be very cautious about providing my first-party data to aggregators and compilers because you're giving away something that is proprietary to you and often for really not that much value. You're right on. I mean, if you're, you know, I'm the only one who knows my first-party data, uh, unless I give it away, sell it to a third-party aggregator, in which case everybody can know my third-party data. And so, you know, there are times when it's going to make sense to do that. There are certain businesses where it certainly makes sense to do that. But there's a reason why, for example, Facebook isn't going to just sell me their, their, their sell me the data they have on their um, members. Uh, they want to keep that data internal uh, and control it. It's their, you know, it's it's a big part of their value. And I think businesses today, as data has grown, businesses today have sort of lost sight of the fact that, uh, or maybe even never realized that their data is valuable, and they're giving it away in more ways than uh, they ever thought before. Okay, so now it's time for our trivia question. Uh, but I'm going to first quote from uh, Stephen Hawking 
from a speech he gave at the Cantab Capital Institute for the Mathematics of Information in November. And Mr. Hawking said, in a dazzling, dazzlingly, 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 dazzlingly complex world, you have to be able to discern the meaning in the mess. We are in a figurative and literal sense awash with what we call data. What we're only now fully realizing is twofold. The sheer quantity of data in any given domain and the tools we need to make use of the information encoded in it. The power of information only comes from the sophistication of the insights which that information lends itself to. The purpose of using information in this context is to drive new insight. For example, I may have taken great pleasure in talking to you about hairy black holes, as I did earlier this year, but the question is, just how hairy are they? What are the implications of the knowledge I believe I have now gained? My answer is I have no idea. <laughs> but that wasn't our trivia question. Uh, our trivia question is, uh, you know, Hawking brings up a great point. We are awash in data. And uh, if you think about where all this data is coming from, a lot of it is actually first-party data. Uh, uh, but I'll get into that more in, a, in, uh, in, our, next, in our next part of this. Uh, so, Alan, the question for you, though, is how much data will people have created by 2025? Okay, that's a good question, and I'm, I'm going to uh, pause a little bit and, and think about that, multitask, while we uh, go to the next section and uh, think about an answer to that one. Okay, Alan, now that we've defined the different types of data that uh, are available to businesses, let's talk about how to integrate them in a, session, in, in a sensible fashion. Okay, so I think everyone agrees that data integration is a necessity, and on a practical level, uh, integration is, is really storing, collecting data from disparate sources. There are just you know, so many sources of data, uh, so many channels, so many devices, and you know, we want all this stuff to end up in one place. But there's really another level uh, of, of question here, which is you know, what does the data integration really mean? And, and uh, what it really means is, is putting it into the context, uh, into a context, and ascribing a value to it. So, uh, there's a lot written about uh, the complete customer view. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that, that's all well and good, but uh, there, there's a question of cost. So, you know, how actionable is data versus how much does it cost? Uh, and just to give an extreme example, so if I wanted to find out a lot of stuff about Larry, I could hire a private investigator and I could pay the private investigator to learn a lot about Larry and, uh, you know, come back with a report. And I'd have a lot of information about Larry that, you know, some of which might be useful or none of which might be useful, but I know it would be very expensive. And, you know, as an extreme, that's not what we're going here for. Uh, what we really want to do is about uh, is identify the data, uh, you know, that has an ROI. You know, what data that we collect is, is meaningful enough and it's predictive enough uh, to, to be of value. So, you know, you, it's not about collecting everything. It's about collecting data uh, that is actionable, that has an ROI, and, and then, you know, using it to, to further the interests of your business. Uh, but a question for you, Larry, uh, how do we link all this data together? You know, well, it sounds hard. Well, before I get to that, I just want to say that when you do go out and get a quote from a PI on collecting all that data about me, let my wife know. She'll give it to you for half price. We all come out ahead. All right. So 
you know, it, you know the, your PI example is a great example because what's inherent in that is that you're trying to find out about individuals. And so when we're taking this first party, second party, third party data, the question is how do we link it all back to an individual level uh, in order to be able to, you know, make, make marketing decisions? So, you know, this kind of, you know, the ability to even think about stuff this way is really a fairly new concept. Uh, you know, you go back 200 years ago, there were no marketing databases, there was no, uh, you know, you weren't trying to link, you know, you might have, you know, you might have had a handwritten customer list, but, you know, the shipping business wasn't trying to link that data to the handwritten customer list of, you know, a wool merchant. Uh, they were, you know, separate, there was no sort of uh, uh, thought to try to link them together. You know, in looking at this, really the first real key or first real thing I could find that allowed, at least in the United States, um, allowed for the ability to try to link someone's data together was actually the social security number. Uh, you know, developed back in the 30s, uh, the social security number, you know, was originally intended to uh, link, um, you know, your payroll uh, check uh, uh, into an account that then when you came, when it came, came time to get social security, you could receive money, you know, they knew how to pay. It then became really just a universal government ID. Uh, and it's been adopted, it was, it was adopted by a lot of other types of businesses as an ID. In fact, when you go to a doctor's office today, go to a dentist's office, they usually ask you for your social security number. They're using it as a way of linking your records. It's not illegal for them to do that. And uh, when you go, you know, it, uh, and in fact, you don't have to provide it. There's no requirement for you to provide it. Uh, but it is sort of like a common business, you know, it's a common business practice that they use for linking. Uh, uh, banks. Uh, this is required. Banks uh, require your social security number when you open a banking account. And that is a requirement by the government and it allows them to try to track down, you know, money. Uh, uh, but, but outside of banks and government, social, you're not required to provide your social security number. And really, for the most part, people tend not to, except for some reason in medical situations. So retailers never really had the option. Uh, merchants, businesses that sell directly to consumers, whether they be in, you know, uh, uh, you know, really whatever type of business they are, travel, uh, people tend not to give up social security numbers quite so easily. And so, uh, what became sort of the primary key, so to speak, or the way, uh, uh, you know, from marketing perspective, you link people together for a long time was based on your address, based on where you live. So some combination of your name and address, and you know, people would form a match key around that. Uh, but that became the way you would, uh, you know. Uh, take that example I gave from a couple hundred years ago where the shipping merchant was trying to link to the wool merchant. You know, for a long time, that key was name and shipping address. Today, though, uh, that world is changing fast. Uh, you know, two keys that have emerged uh, over the last, really, you know, 10 years as a way of linking those, that disparate data are your email address uh, and your cell phone number. And cell phone numbers, you know, people will give up that cell phone number in a heartbeat not like they used to get, you know, not like they're using to give up, um, not like they give up social security numbers. Uh, and, uh, you know, the nice thing about a cell phone number as a linking device as opposed to an email address, I might have five, six, ten email addresses. I've had my cell phone number for uh, a lot of years. Can't even think about how many. How long have you had your cell phone number? Long time. It's a great linking device. And so I would say, you know, if you are, um, you know, if you're a business and you're not collecting uh, uh, cell phone number, you should, because it's becoming sort of the linking standard uh, across the board. So uh, uh, that's, how you, that's how you link it all together, but 
um, you know, uh, really, I guess the question is next, you know, what's the point? You know, why do you, why, why do you get all this together? So, you know, you know me, I'm a data modeler. Uh, and so the, the, you know, and we're talking about marketing use of data. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, trying to predict response rate, trying to predict likelihood that someone is going to take some action. Um, it might be to compile how valuable uh, a particular type of client, uh, a particular type of customer is. Uh, it might be to measure, you know, what I spent to market to a customer versus what I can uh, uh, get back from the customer. Uh, it's, a, it, it's really, I think, uh, it might be to help me figure out what's the right way to communicate to them, what's the right advertising medium to use uh, to communicate with them. Uh, it's, it's really about, at the end of the day, optimize, you know, for, for the marketing use of this data, is about optimizing marketing spend relative to, you know, at the end of the day, really gross margin uh, that a business can produce uh, from, that, uh, from that people or from, the, from their customers. Um, but, you know, Alan, how do, how do people, you know, what, what have you seen about how people historically use this? Uh, well, well, I think first-party data has, has historically been used to predict the behavior of existing customers. So, you know, basic RFM, which is, is the, you know, the standard for going back, you know, 50 years for segmenting a customer file, as, you know, this person bought, you know, three-plus times from us, and, and uh, they last bought 30 days ago, and they spent $200 a pop. You know, you know, high likelihood that this person is going to purchase from us again, and that, that's a very basic use of it that has driven the direct response industry for a very long time. Uh, Amazon certainly has has made uh, good use of uh, first-party data to, uh, you know, actually um, offer customers products that they believe they'll be interested in based on what they've bought before, and they've they've taken that science to. Another level. It's not only uh, that these people are likely to buy again. It's but here's what they they might likely purchase. Uh, you know, second party data uh, really has has uh, two uses. You know, one is it, you can use it to to augment uh, uh, your own CRM data, uh, but you can you know you can also use it to just sort of broaden uh, the audience that you may you know you you can appeal to, especially if you're. In the kind of partnership that we discussed before, where you're you're uh, trading information with somebody who has a similar audience, and then third-party data has typically been used to predict the behavior of, of prospects and the likelihood of uh, a, a prospect to, to purchase or to take some kind of action. So, so that's the history lesson. But uh, you know, Larry, has this changed? Uh, it sure has. So you know, as you, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, first-party data historically was only about your own customers, but there's sort of a there's there's really becoming sort of like two types of first-party data that you can collect today. One type of first-party data, the historical type, is when a business asks uh, for information from uh, a consumer uh, and receive that information back. So they ask for an email address, they receive an email address back. Uh, the reason, though, why we have this explosion in data that uh, that we were referring to in our trivia question is there's now the ability to collect information about what a consumer does when using, uh, you know, a business's website, uh, or when uh, uh, when using just other um, uh, other services. So, for example, if you have a cell phone, you know, there's now data that can collect uh, your location. Where are you? Uh, if you think about the Internet of Things, uh, you know, the uh, you know that all of a sudden there's like a, a you know a whole new class of this. 
um, it is first-party data in that it is being collected from, um, from a consumer, but it's being collected about a consumer's behavior or about the, you know, rather than being questions that are directly asked. And that's, like I say, what's really causing the explosion of data. What that's led to is the ability to have first-party data not become just something you can use to understand more about people who have already bought from you, but it's become a source of prospecting. It's become a source of way of reaching new consumers, consumers who have not yet transacted with you. Uh, and I think that's the, you know, that's, you know, in, a, in an incredibly important shift in that we can now use our own first-party data uh, to find prospects in a way we never could before. So, uh, you know, Alan, since I was since I was referencing, you know, this explosion of first-party data, uh, it's time to get to the uh, get back to the trivia question. Have you uh, have you had enough time to think about how much data, and like I say, it's primarily this user collected or collected from user data is going to be around in 2025? Well, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, uh, Larry, and I came up with an answer of uh, 2.47 to the 27th power squared terabytes. Is that close? <laughs> uh, actually, no, but it took me a minute. You're off by about um, 20 orders of magnitude, uh, but, in the, wrong, but in, the, uh, in the bigger direction. Uh. Uh, it's actually a uh, uh, 167, or I'm sorry, 163 zettabytes of data is the estimate. And a zettabyte is a uh, septillion. You know, you think about billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, septillion. Each one is an order of magnitude above. You did 10 to the 27th, which is way above that, and then you squared it. And so you went into, I don't know, the year 3020. Mm. Um, but... It was a, uh, you know, I appreciate that you actually had an envelope to use. All right, so that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to two guys ramble about uh, data, uh, about the types of data you can collect, how you can integrate it, and how you can use it. Uh, if you found this topic interesting, uh, you may find our blog, Integrating Consumer Data for an Individualized Marketing Approach, interesting. Uh, you can find it and more resources, more resources at navistone.com backslash blog. Again, that's navistone.com backslash blog. We'll be back in a few weeks to talk about why marketers also need to be data storytellers. Well, thanks for coming. I'm Alan Abbott. And I'm Larry Cavanaugh. And have a good day.